We're grateful for everyone who supports us. Thanks to all our sponsors. This is an ICRT podcast. Enjoy the show. We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time time for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week with me, your host, Gavin Phipps. And today I'm joined by Brian Hugh here in the studio in Taipei. Thanks for having me. And by Donovan Smith in Taichung. And it's great to be back. Thank you. Tonight we'll be discussing the health minister accepting the DPP's Taipei mayoral nomination, the KMT touting the 1992 consensus at the Straits Forum, and the Zhanghua District Court ordering a crypto miner to pay a rather whopping power bill. But we'll begin with Taiwan remembering former Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe this week. And while a bevy of local political heavyweights were busy giving local media sound bites during visits to the Japan-Taiwan Exchange Association offices in Taipei to pay their respects, it was actually Vice President William Lai, who stole the show after making an unannounced visit to Tokyo to pay his respects to Abe and to attend the funeral of the murdered former Japanese Prime Minister. Lai arrived in Tokyo on Monday after leaving Taiwan rather quietly, only to make a splash when he was filmed by Japanese media entering Abe's residence, accompanied by Taiwan's top envoy to Japan, Frank Scher. The presidential office, though, was quick to stress that Lai and Abe were old friends, but they refused to comment on Lai's itinerary while he was in Japan. While Japanese authorities were downplaying the significance of the visit, stressing that Lai had travelled to Tokyo in a personal capacity. However, reports were claiming that Lai was there as a special envoy for President Tsai Ing-wen. Lai arrived back in Taiwan at the Taoyuan International Airport Tuesday evening and nodded to reporters without making any comment. Now, that makes Lai the highest-ranking government official from Taiwan to have actually travelled to Japan since Tokyo severed diplomatic relations with the island in 1972. Needless to say, Beijing was rather perturbed by Lai's quick trip and China's foreign ministry said that its embassy in Japan had lodged a stern representation with the government there about Lai's attending of Abe's funeral and a ministry spokesman got rather hot under the collar telling reporters that Taiwan does not have a so-called vice president and Taiwan authorities had used the opportunity to engage in political manipulation but the controversy wasn't confined to the mouths of Beijing however as here in Taiwan the Tsai administration's decision to fly ROC flags at half-mast on Monday at government agencies and schools in remembrance of Abe led to some rather iry feelings and questions as to why the government would be doing that. Now, the former chairman of the KMT's Evaluation and Discipline Committee, Ye Ching Yuen, described it as being wholly unacceptable and went on social media to have a bit of a tirade, saying that Abe made no great contribution to either Taiwan, world peace or human progress. While former KMT lawmaker and now media personality, Zhao Xiaokang, was also rather vocal about the flag issue and he told reporters that the KMT should not follow the DPP and fly its flag at half-mast as Tokyo has not apologised or reflected on the Japanese war of aggression against China and nor has it apologised or compensated Taiwanese comfort women. So Brian, Mr Lai flies to Tokyo unannounced. That's right, and so it's not surprising that it was very uh, conducted in a low-profile way. However, precisely the attempt is to not trumpet it loudly so that it could happen and then play this up after the fact. And so this went on. Uh, quite interestingly, it's not actually the first time that Lai has visited Japan. In 2019, he did actually also visit, but he was then premier. And so this was also not as trumpeted, I think, as loudly as uh, now, I mean, after Abe's death, because there's been this global tension on reactions to Abe's death from across the region, because particularly there's an opportunity for signaling. Uh, I think what's also interesting to note then is that Kishida, the current Japanese prime minister, uh, this can be seen as a signal from him in that sense regarding his stance on Taiwan, 
uh, but also it's directed at not only China, the U.S., but also Taiwan, in the sense that there are three audiences for this, as well as other global audiences, in that he's indicating that he con- wishes to continue pro-Taiwan policy uh, to the Taiwanese public, to China, but also to the U.S., at a, question, a time in which the regional realignment uh, is still occurring with uh, U.S.-China tensions ramping up. Yes, I think it was very appropriate that Lai uh, visited uh, Japan, and it was done in pretty much exactly the kind of way I think that Abe would have appreciated. There was a lot of sort of nudge-nudge-wink-wink going on uh, with uh, Shinzo Abe when it came to Taiwan. Um, I, I recently wrote a piece uh, in Taiwan News about this, uh, where you'll see there's a, he had a pattern of kind of... Uh, he, he, for example, they, when uh, a lot of people remember the Tsai uh, and Donald Trump call when Trump was the president-elect, but when uh, Tsai Ing-wen was clearly about to uh, win the victory in the, 20, the 2016 elections, when she was still a candidate, but she was well ahead and it was, you know, the writing was on the wall, she was going to win, um, Shinzo Abe and her happened to be according to the Japanese press, they were at the same hotel at the same time and had an impromptu meeting, which the Japanese press you know, made quite a bit of hay out of. The DPP came out and issued a public statement saying, oh, no, 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 you know, they didn't meet at all. However, Shinzo Abe had also done exactly the same thing with Li Denghui, who was, of course, was Tsai Ing-wen's mentor many years ago. So there was sort of a pattern there. And then you had when Shinzo Abe came out with his uh, very famous call for uh, the United States to drop uh, strategic ambiguity toward Taiwan. He came out with that piece a few weeks before Joe Biden comes out to, uh, comes out to uh, Asia for his famous visit. And standing right next to uh, the Japanese prime minister, that's when he came out, he came out and flat out said that the United States would come and defend Taiwan and said that's what we would agree to. Um, so there's, there's sort of a pattern when it came to Shinzo Abe and dealing with Taiwan officials where everything was plausible deniability. But, in the, for example, in the case of the hotel and, um, you know, of course, uh, Biden's comments, of course, the White House walked back his comments and said, oh, no, 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 you know, American policy hasn't changed. But he was reassuring the Japanese public uh, following Shinzo Abe's comments, uh, you know, in his piece on strategic ambiguity. And again, you know, with the hotel incident, they leaked it to the press. So there was there was always this game of, as Brian noted, there's three three different audiences here. Um but there's a, there's a lot of nudge, nudge, wink, wink going on so that, you know, everything, when it came to China, they could say, oh, oh, it was just Shinzo Abe's personal opinion on strategic ambiguity, and oh, no, 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 they never met at that hotel. It, there was a lot of that kind of thing in the relationship. And, of course, you know, this, having uh, the vice president uh, visit Japan, the highest-ranking figure in 50 years, is, of course, very significant. And again, as Brian noted, the, it, it, that's a message to three different audiences here. And it was all done kind of nudge, nudge, wink, wink. Oh, it was just a private trip. And Brian, what about the flag issue? With some people saying, we've got no problem with the flag at half-mast. And other people going, hang on a minute, what are you doing? 
Yeah, I mean, the issue is particularly sensitive in light of the fact that Taiwan was formerly colonized by Japan, of course. Uh, but the reactions have divided primarily among the pan-green and the pan-blue camp. Uh, but what's interesting this time is actually the deep blues were, of course, unsurprisingly, quite critical of the Taiwan administration for doing so. But Eric Chu, as KMT chair, uh, said that, well, it did reflect the Taiwanese people's gratitude and respect for Shinzo Abe. And for this, he was roundly criticized by the other KMT members and the deep blues and so forth. Uh, what's interesting about this regarding Chu's uh, chairmanship of the KMT is it illustrates the political risks he's willing to take to try to rebrand the KMT, including his recent trip to the U.S. Uh, but in this sense, it's actually quite unusual to see the KMT, a party that has such a historical animus against Japan, to actually uh, take this stance. And so this comes along with other recent oddities from the uh, Eric Chu KMT, including emphasizing, for example, that the PRC has never controlled Taiwan, that the ROC is an independent and sovereign country, uh, and so forth. Uh, so it's unsurprising that particularly the uh, wedge issues that have often divided Japan from the other parts of uh, Asia also exist in Taiwan, for example, regarding comfort women and Shinzo Abe refusing to apologize for that. That's been a stumbling block, for example, to the U.S. trying to cement relations between South Korea and Japan to ward off China. But this more often comes from the Pan Blue camp when this is brought up, which is, of course, the more pro-China-leading side. And so from the DPP, then, you have a lot of pan-green politicians visiting the memorial wall that has been set up in the uh, basement of the Taiwan-Japan Exchange Association or the uh, wall that was set up by supporters outside of it. Uh, in order to kind of show their views on Abe, appreciation for his actions, and to signal where they stand regarding uh, just alignment with Japan uh, and, and broader uh, kind of regional trends in that sense. And Donovan, what, did you, what was your takeaway from the flag controversy? Uh, yeah, the internal KMT politics was a really uh, <clears throat> caught my attention, uh, which uh, Brian talked about there. Um, I, it, Eric Chu has been trying to... Uh, make a big break with uh, the past and try to make uh, the KMT electable again. And so he's been talking about uh, aligning and becoming pro-U.S., uh, anti-communist, um, and to rebrand the party. But, and I think we'll be talking about this topic later, uh, and also there was talk of shelving the 92 consensus, which obviously that's been, that the party's caved on uh, pretty quickly. But the uh, when at the party KMT party headquarters when they uh, moved the flag to half uh, to half mast at the KMT party head headquarters, a deep blues protested. They actually physically went out and protested, and you got uh, Hong Xiuzhu, Zhao Shaokang, uh, Zhang Yazhong, all of these uh, figures came out and blasted uh, Eric Chu for for doing this. And saying that he was ignoring history, saying he was ignorant, uh, you know, you, a lot of very colorful and descriptive language. And But what they're referring to, of course, is back in the Chinese, uh, before the Chinese Civil War, the Sino-Japanese War in China, when, of course, the KMT was trying to fight off the Japanese invasion. And so within the KMT, you have hardliners who remember the history of the KMT in China fighting off the Japanese invaders. Now, <clears throat> the DPP doesn't have that baggage. It didn't, you know, it didn't go through the rape of Nanjing. It didn't go through all of those, you know, horrible atrocities and that bitter war that the KMT fought against the Japanese. The Taiwanese, of course, were, uh, during World War II, fighting on the side of the Japanese as part of the Japanese colonial empire. So within the KMT, you have this, uh, there's a bitterness that goes back 
to the Second World War back when they were the rulers of China. And, of course, that is kind of a falls on deaf ears here in Taiwan, you know, but those KMT hardliners take that history of when the KMT was the, you know, the ruling party in China very seriously. And it also shows quite a bit of how much and how out of touch they are with public opinion. But these are major figures within, within, the, within the KMT. And it underscores how difficult it's going to be for Eric Ju to distance the party from the old line deep blue ideology that he that is has made the KMT basically all but electable unelectable uh, in national elections Moving on now, in this week's local election news, the DPP on Wednesday formally nominated Health Minister Chen Shih-jong as its candidate for the Taipei mayoral election. Now speaking, following his nomination, Chen said that he would strive to win the ballot and work toward making Taipei a better city. And according to Chen, Taipei has had the most resources allocated to it, but still has stagnated for some time. And he hopes to do more for Taipei, and with that in mind, he will soon present a plan to boost the growth of the city. Now Chen resigned from his ministerial post and handed off his duties to the head of the Central Epidemic Command Centre on Thursday, or rather he was preparing to hand off and he said that he will step down formally when he has a replacement. Now of course Chen will be facing off against the KMT's Zhang Wen-an and possibly Taipei Deputy Mayor Vivian Huang, who was yet to actually formally announce her plans to run in the election, but has the backing of outgoing Taipei Mayor Kerwin Jur. Now, on hearing the news earlier this week that Chen was going to be nominated, Zhang Wen-an went on the attack, and he accused the still health minister at the time of abandoning his ministerial responsibilities at the height of the coronavirus pandemic, as nearly 1,000 people have died of the coronavirus in Taipei, and he also slammed Chen for what he called a lacklustre performance in preventing the pandemic. So, Brian, of course, no surprise that they nominated Chen, and no surprise really that the KMT came straight out and attacked him for his coronavirus pandemic work. That's right. And so it's actually quite interesting because the DPP delayed so long on announcing Chen's uh, that they were running him. They kind of let it simmer in the media and there's much media speculation. Would he run? Would he not run? And so forth. And now finally he is running. So it does appear the DPP has decided that in spite of the fact that Chen's performance uh, as a politician is very linked to perceptions of Taiwan's COVID performance, they still their best candidate. And so the KMT has, of course, seen this as the weak point in which to attack. The transition away from COVID zero and towards a COVID management strategy is still seen by many members of the public as the DPP allowing COVID to go out of control. And there are other issues which the KMT would attack him on. Even during the period of high popularity by Chen, when uh, Taiwan was quite successful in beating off COVID-19, the KMT would grab onto issues to attack. And so when Taiwan experienced its first COVID outbreak, its first major COVID outbreak, it would attack the issues of vaccine acquisition or just the slowness with regards to vaccines arriving in Taiwan, or, or there's a back and forth regarding whether, for example, companies such as Foxconn could purchase vaccines. And then now, more recently, the uh, issues hinge around the deaths that have occurred because now Taiwan has shifted towards a COVID management strategy. In particular, there's a lot of focus on the deaths of children because it's a very emotional story and it's a way to kind of play up this, this notion. Uh, but in the meantime, KMT politicians have also been criticized regarding this, particularly type, new Taipei Mayor Hoyoi. And so it's a question regarding attacks on Chen. How much will that diffuse among other politicians? But then with regards to the DPP, uh, I think it really is actually, uh, it needs to kind of advance now other viewpoints, political viewpoints for Chen, because Chen had positioned himself as more of a technocrat, someone that's apolitical in managing COVID response, but now he has to have positions and so forth as a Taipei mayor. And as far as Chen Shijong, I mean, you know, it's not, as you noted, it's not a, not a big surprise that he was chosen. Um, 
Now, as a candidate, um, because Brian's pretty much summed up a lot of this, there's a few things that, there are a few advantages and disadvantages that he has. I actually don't think, um, you know, this is speculative, but I really don't think that the the pandemic is actually going to be a big issue when it comes to the election. Um, But I do think that the positive feelings for the in general uh, well-done job by the CCC uh, will help uh, Chen in the election. But he's he's also got some serious negatives when it comes to being a politician. Um, The KMT is going to hit at him for being a dentist and a political appointee and not quite the technocrat that uh, he was portrayed as during the uh, pandemic. Uh, he's not a young man. He's, he's, he's quite old. And if you Google him, uh, if you Google him in Google Images, uh, he doesn't smile. He gets, at most, he gets this sort of vague half smile. That's about as effusive as he gets. Um, so he, you know, as a candidate, he's got some serious weaknesses. And now he's up against some candidates, which also have some serious weaknesses. Um, you know, they've all got their advantages and disadvantages. Uh, but I think he's got an uphill battle when it comes to, to winning Taipei. And of course, Brian, he's also in the medical profession. And of course, Taipei has just had eight years of a medical professional mayor. Yeah, it's kind of funny that way. I think uh, I often think of Taiwan as a nation run by doctors and lawyers because we have so many of them in office. Lawyers, not surprising, just anywhere in the world, but Taiwan has this particular focus on running doctors for office. Uh, even, for example, William Lai has a medical background, but he doesn't play this up, actually, in his public image. Or someone like Chen Mai uh, sometimes as well. And so this is kind of interesting there, too, because it's a reversal of the uh, particular dynamic regarding the DPP and the KMT, where it's actually the KMT running the younger candidate this time, which is Jiang Wan'an at age 43, where the DPP is running a much older candidate. Of course, Jiang is the descendant of Chiang Kai-shek, and so I expect the DPP to use that against him, uh, because in spite of being a younger politician, then he has a lot of political baggage from his ancestry in this sense. Uh, regarding Chen Shizhong, I think it's actually quite interesting, too, regarding his public image, because he actually does sort of have two images. There's the very nice, uh, kind of not very emotional, but sometimes dry, someone with a dry humor that appears in the CEC press conferences. And you have a much more aggressive Chen during the legislative hearings when he's coming under attack and is responding, actually, much more aggressively. And so I think the, the thing is he has to kind of pivot images now, or at least take on aspects of both. And so I think this is kind of interesting, too, in regarding his, uh, his need to actually change images or how he behaves with the public here. And what do you see happening, Donovan? I'll get your crystal ball out. Do you see Taipei voters voting for an elderly medical per- professional or maybe a younger man who, vote, who is related, of course, to Chiang Kai-shek? <laughs> well, OK, when it comes to, to, Wayne, uh, to Wayne Chiang, uh, the DPP has to be very careful on attacking him on his heritage um, because he didn't really know about it when he was growing up. He didn't find out about it until he was in high school. And uh, you also, you know... It's a little bit tricky for him as well, though, because he has to honor his ancestors, because if he didn't, he would not, you know, have the proper filial uh, piety that's expected. Um, So he's in kind of a a complicated position when it comes to his heritage, but the DPP can't get too hard on him either. Um, The candidate I I find the most interesting to watch is Vivian Huang. because she's, you know, she's risen in the polls significantly. If you, you know, if you've been following this since the, since the beginning, she was a distant third long shot, but she has, in you know, a fair number of polls, 
uh, it actually beat out Chen Shijong. Well, Wayne Jiang has pretty consistently, with only one or two exceptions, uh, <clears throat> has been the front runner. But Wayne Jiang, uh, Jiang Wanan, has been slowly slipping in the polls. So you've got Vivian Huang, who we don't even know what party she'll represent, or if any, it's starting to look like she's going to run as an independent. But she's actually people's first party, which is something the DPP can rip her apart for. Um, and she's publicly declared a loyalty to the people's first party. But she campaigns with, hangs out with, attends party meetings with the Taiwan People's Party, but the Taiwan People's Party has confirmed she's not going to run as a Taiwan People's Party candidate. Um, so she'll probably run as an independent, but we'll see. So she's got a lot of baggage as well. It's actually, I think, going to be an interesting, very tight three-way race. Um, and I think a lot of it's going to come down to, you know, who screws up the most, frankly. Um, you've got the, the wooden, unsmiling, elderly DPP candidate. You've got the, the kind of interesting, but uh, some deep blue baggage, and but, you know, a, a, and kind of indistinct political stance of Vivian Huang. And then you've got um, the young, pretty boy, but generally widely perceived as not having a lot of substance, Wayne Jiang. Um, you know, he's, uh, he's somebody who's a party loyalist, but he, he, there's not this sense that he has much heft because he is quite young. Um, so all three of the candidates are kind of flawed but interesting. And we have to take a short break now, but we will return after these rather important commercials. Welcome back to Taiwan this week. And the annual Straits Forum took place in Xiamen in China's Fujian province this week, at which a letter from China's President Xi Jinping was read out in which he touted the benefits of studying and doing business in China to the young Taiwanese in attendance. Now, after that was all good and done and read out, KMT Vice Chairman Andrew Shah addressed the event in a video message in which he stressed that the party being the KMT, will continue to promote exchanges between Taiwan and China on the foundation of the 1992 consensus. Shah told delegates at the forum that the consensus allows for practical exchanges with China while also reducing the risks of cross-strait peace being shattered and it will also lead to prosperity and stability in a manner that he said protects the democratic way of life in Taiwan. And the KMT vice chairman went on to say that his party will abide by its charter and continue to promote cross-strait exchanges and dialogue on the pragmatic basis of the 1992 consensus while also opposing Taiwan independence. Now the KMT has been busy this week defending the decision to participate in the forum, saying that it's proof of the party's competence in defending Taiwan's interests. So Brian, of course, talk of the 1992 consensus no big surprise there, really. That's right. And so it's a refrain that the KMT has often brought up, but it occurs at a somewhat weird juncture in which Eric Chu is trying to do this whole pivot to America thing. And so it's interesting here that then you have the KMT officials appearing at the Straits Forum with China, saying that, well, we're actually still anti-Taiwanese independence, we're still pro-1990 consensus, and so forth. Because this also takes place shortly after the KMT Party Central uh, issued a statement, as I alluded to earlier, saying that 
the ROC is a sovereign and independent country. The PRC has never controlled Taiwan, language that is not so different from Thais. And this was a response to China's emphasizing claims over the Taiwan Strait recently. And so this is kind of an odd balancing act for the KMT to play here. But it's to be expected this will continue. Uh, the Straits Forum has been going on for a long time, but it's actually quite interesting that in 2020, the KMT boycotted the Straits Forum, claiming that because of news reports uh, that China from Chinese state media that the KMT representative to the Straits Forum that year was going to sue for peace. And so that was kind of an odd incident. And so I think the uh, uh, it's one of those things, actually, where the KMT's relation to China is, is worth scrutinizing at present in which direction it will go in the future. But in the meantime, it continues along these familiar tropes. Yeah. Now, this is very interesting. There was a a very revealing piece that came out uh, about a week, week and a half ago in Mirror Media, where uh, there was a series of elected representatives, high party officials, people close to Eric Jude. None None of these sources were named. But it laid out a strategy which was ironically very similar to Johnny Jiang's strategy to try and make the party electable again. And so this included being pro-U.S., it included being um, uh, anti-communist, and, you know, as Brian noted, there was uh, a lot of talk of, um, you know, of, you know, they, they were t- starting to actually crib, and they did this on the official uh, KMT website, cribbing lines uh, from the DPP, from the Thai administration specifically, about how, yeah, the ROC is a sovereign nation, has always been independent, and all these kinds of comments. Now, within all of this, there was mention of they were hoping to try and shelve the 1992 consensus. And when Eric Chu was running for chair uh, back in September, October of last year, uh, Eric Chu said that he would insist on telling Xi Jinping that the 1992 consensus is, as the KMT views it, that the the, the the 92 consensus is there is one China with each side with its own interpretation, which, of course, China has never accepted. But then there was this talk, uh, you know, which is highlighted in the Mirror Media piece, which quoted several, uh, you know, high-ranking KMT officials on this, is that they were trying to shelve the 1992 consensus. And during uh, Eric Ju's trip to the U.S., he described the 92 consensus using Chen Trapian's description of it as a non-consensus consensus and likening it to strategic ambiguity. And this, obviously, the Cross Straits Forum, not only did they did basically this new line crumble and fail, which has come under you know attack from everybody from Mind Joe to the deeper blue people that you'd expect, uh, basically, it, it's now clear that the, that Eric Chu thinks they can't abandon it, they can't give up on it, or Andrew Shaw went out on his own. One of the two. We don't really know at this point. But it does look like the KMT has buckled um, on the 92 consensus, and this is going to seriously undermine the efforts of the KMT to portray itself as not being the Comprador party or the close to China party because the KMT uh, is, as long as you support the 92 consensus, you're underscoring one China, which of course is a pro-unification stance, which is deeply, deeply, deeply unpopular with the Taiwanese public. So, uh, you know, uh, you know, I, I don't really see Eric Chu's, you know, Eric Chu's 
attempts to rebrand the party are already starting to come unraveled and they're going to have to he's going to have to really figure out how he can pull this all together considering all the party disunity by the uh, August 28th party conference that's right. The KMT has become increasingly partisan and increasingly split between the Deep Blues and the more moderate members of the KMT. And Eric Chu has long been perceived as someone that is much more pro-U.S. He spent a time in the U.S. as an academic, and then there are all these conspiratorial accusations against him within the KMT, including claims that he's a CIA agent and things like that. And so I'm pretty sure this still circulates among the Deep Blues, and, and to this day, particularly in light of his U.S. trip. Uh, but I think the issue with the KMT is that there's so few platforms now that unify the party that people can agree on within the party that the 1990 consensus is actually one of them. And so proposals to drop the 1990 consensus then are seen as compromising on a core value of the party when it's been a familiar standard for the party in elections for quite a long time. And so that's another issue for the party. Uh, I actually find the emphasis on anti-communism from Eric Chu quite interesting because I perceive this as an attempt to find one of these kind of core principles that everyone can agree on. Well, you know, with like the Deep Blues rising up and emphasizing the ROC in defense of the ROC, then perhaps you can emphasize the anti-communist aspect. For example, one notes this is actually very different from the DPP's framing, which you do have anti-communism brought up periodically. The more time, more often, it's this kind of general anti-authoritarianism or opposition to authoritarian power in that sense. And so I think Eric Chu is trying to stake something out there in terms of unifying the different parts of the party in a way that is more amenable to the public. But I don't, actually don't think that's going to seed when you're talking about anti-communism and then meeting with the CCP literally. That's still kind of a paradox. And Donovan, do you see possibly ranking KMT officials under Eric Ju popping off to China before the local elections? Of course they will. <laughs> <laughs> he, he's not a very strong party leader, and a lot of people don't fear him. I mean, he, <clears throat> he won his chair position. Now, he did win, and this is important within KMT party politics, he won a full-term election. And unlike, you know, by-elections where they tend to go with marginal figures that lead, you know, fringe factions like uh, Hong Shouju or Johnny Jiang, when you actually have a full-term election, that's when you tend to get out the heavyweights. And if you win a full-term election, you're considered more, you know, more seri- a more serious KMT chair. But he only won with just shy of 46% of the vote. So he came in weak, as a also as a former chair who got crushed in a presidential election and he lost in a landslide in 2016, and then he's been uh, doing a lot of top down. Uh, and now, by the way, Taiwan's doing the same thing, but uh, he's been appointing a lot of candidates and bypassing the normal primary procedures. Uh, for mayors and county commissioner positions, which has already led to splits in the party in uh, Miaoli, uh, Hualien, and Penghu, I believe. All three are now uh, local KMT candidates who had anticipated they would be in a primary and anticipated that they you know, might do well. They have broken from the party and are going to run as independents. In fact, the guy in Miali is saying he's still going to run as a KMT candidate regardless. So um, Eric Ju right now, he's got, uh, he's got serious weakness in, the part, in his standing in the party. So for him to try and he doesn't really have much ability to clamp down with authority. Now, you've got people like Hong Xiaoju, who just recently came back from China, who went when he was in the uh, U.S. 
she went to China and visited Xinjiang and started parroting the Chinese Communist Party line uh, about the U.S. and Western forces, uh, you know, you know, uh, essentially, you know, uh, spreading lies about China's treatment of people in in Xinjiang, and that it was merely a, you know, efforts against terrorism and how wonderful the Chinese Communist Party is. And, uh, you know, these party members are going to keep doing that. And I, and the thing is, Eric Zhu doesn't have the power or leverage. Hong Xiaoju doesn't have an electoral position to win or lose, so she can just keep talking. Zhang Yajong is the president of the Sun Yat-sen School, which is the KMT school. You've got Wu Zihuai, who's a sitting legislator. Um, and you've got uh, Zhao Shaokang over at the uh, Broadcasting Corporation of China, and he, of course he's a major media figure. So for Eric Jew to shut these people up, it, and he's got to somehow figure out a way to get them to shut up or kick them out of the party, and both of those things are going to be extremely difficult to pull off. And of course, Brian, late last week, Taipei Mayor Kerwin Zhe came out and defended the Taipei Shanghai Forum. Yeah, that's right. And so it's uh, not surprising that Ke did that again, because that is one of his trademark uh, initiatives. Uh, but it's also interesting because Ko has seen a political opportunity in some sense, with Eric Chu trying to pivot towards the U.S. There is a perception that Ko might lean more towards the deep blues in that sense and try to play up those connections. I mean, that's how Ko's proposal of building a bridge between Xingmen and Xiamen, uh, part of China, uh, was perceived, for example, by some analysts. And so this is kind of interesting there as well. I think particularly with uh, Eric Chu, too, the knives are going to start coming out, particularly as we get closer to presidential elections, because of the fact that he is perceived as having presidential ambitions, uh, despite the fact vowing not to do so and to only remain as chair and to try to cultivate a strong and powerful presidential candidate for the KMT. And so it's interesting then that people are potential allies, let's say, or much more moderate in the party, have actually attacked him then. So Ho Yui or uh, Johnny Chang, who he defeated in the chair election, uh, have attacked Chu, for example. And that pattern, I think, will also continue. Uh, the Taipei Shanghai Forum, uh, that, has, that is something that actually predates Ke, so it's, it's not Ke's initiative, but he, he has defended it and used it as a platform, and uh, he believes that it is an, a, an important uh, forum for dialogue uh, across the straits. And as Brian noted, it, there is a lot of speculation, like with the Jim Men Bridge, that he's actually trying to take deep blue voters from uh, the KMT who are disaffected with Eric Jew, which I think is very, very interesting. Um, now, uh, as Brian noted, when it comes to presidential ambitions, Kulinja has flat out said he is going to run if he's doing okay in the polls. Uh, Eric Jew, if in the recent polls, his suitability to run for president, I saw in a recent poll on this, is absolutely miserable. He got something like six percent support or something like that. So I, I really don't think that he's a viable candidate going forward. Um, but yeah, Eric Jew is definitely very, very weak. Um, and when it comes to cross-strait policies, Eric Jew is trying to position the party much closer to the DPP position, as Jiang Yajong noted. Uh, he said, well, your positions are, how are they, he said something along the lines of, the, you know, there's very little difference between this and the DPP stance, which I think is exactly what uh, Eric Chu wants to do. Whereas Kulinja, because the TPP doesn't have anywhere near the baggage the KMT does, he can actually kind of dart and weave taking a pro-Taiwan stance, uh, you know, 
in one forum and a much more uh, pro-engagement with China stance in another one, because it also the TPP doesn't support the 92 consensus. So he's got a whole lot more room to maneuver, and people are going to give uh, the Coenza and the TPP a lot, a, a lot more uh, leeway, I think, whereas Eric Jew is really trying to deal with a lot of party baggage and legacy uh, that is going to be very, very hard for him to discard. And before we go this week, after all that politics, we're going to move well away from politics. And, of course, we've talked about electricity rates in recent weeks several times, but one Zhanghua County man has taken that to new levels after the Zhanghua District Court on Tuesday of this week ordered him to pay 1.6 million NT to Thai Power for using private electricity lines to power his cryptocurrency mining operation without paying any energy bills. Now, the cheeky chappy was nabbed by police in Lugang last year, and they found that he had 20 cryptocurrency mining machines attached to two private power lines that were not connected to an electrical meter. Now, the Zhanghua District Prosecutor's Office did not pursue criminal charges, arguing that no theft was involved, but Thai Power filed a civil lawsuit seeking payment for the unauthorised use of electricity provided under contract by the energy supplier to its customers, like we all do. However, the man is claiming that he should not be held responsible because he was unaware of the existence of the private power lines, which he said his father installed before he died in December of 2019. He's also claiming that the 1.6 million NT in compensation being sought by Thai Power is rather unreasonable. Now, Brian, what I find rather unreasonable about this story is he's blaming a dead person. Yeah, and his father as well. So I think it's a kind of funny, actually, to think about because at a time in which there's a lot of concern about older people and their understanding of technology, let's say, regarding disinformation or misinformation, those kind of things, someone is blaming their father for being very tech-savvy and installing cryptocurrency mining uh, operations on power lines that are unregistered. It's also kind of a sign of the times. We have these factories built in farmland that are unregistered and using power, and it's legal, but now we have crypto mining operations uh, that are doing something similar, I guess, using power lines. Yeah, well, you know, um, obviously, since uh, Lugang's uh, port is silted up and uh, exporting deer from the, the harbor there uh, is no longer a viable business, I, you know, I, I see that uh, you know maybe this is a trend on you know where they can revive Lugang. But obviously, this guy wasn't. It was kind of a dim bulb. And yes, you're you're absolutely right. Blaming this on a dead person is a little bit despicable and also disingenuous, I think, as Brian noted. It seems highly unlikely that uh, his father was a dedicated crypto miner and tech-savvy sort of guy on his own. So, uh, But he, he was lucky that he avoided the criminal charges. I, I, Ty Power, I think, was actually probably correct in saying that this was theft. Um, but the courts, I think, were also right in declining to make it a criminal case because, it, you know, it is really more a simple fraud sort of situation. And uh, and so what they did is they 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 enforced the the electricity bill, at a, but uh, the fine is they have to pay 1.6 of what the electricity bill is because that's what's in the Thai power contract. And Brian, do you think this happens a lot? Do you think there's a lot of people here in Taiwan mining cryptocurrencies? Uh, I actually think so, yeah. I think also it's one of those things that when someone has a very sketchy neighbor nowadays, they're like, well, maybe that is actually a crypto mining operation. I actually think this is very uh, increasingly common uh, in urban areas or other parts of Taiwan, actually. And so this is kind of an interesting trend to look into, I think. 
Well, I guess if you've got a high power bill, you're either a crypto miner <laughs> or you're growing pot, one of the two. Um, and, um, but this is uh, traditionally uh, one way that the authorities here have uh, found uh, uh, pot growers. Um, but now I think increasingly they're, you know, they're going to be crypto miners, which I, as far as I, as far as I know, it's still, still legal here in Taiwan, but those uh, electricity bills are enormous. Uh, but, uh, you know, on the positive side, there, there are a lot of efforts, uh, among, uh, Taiwan tech companies to bring down the power consumption uh, in chips and, uh, in the cooling technology, uh, around these chips specifically for targeting people like crypto miners and major data centers uh, to bring down those, that that power you know that power usage uh, you know to keep these processors humming um, so you know who knows this may actually be helping Taiwan keep its tech edge and do you think Donovan that he should possibly say I'll pay the bill but I'll pay it in cryptocurrency I, I don't think he'd get away with it uh, the, the central <laughs> bank here has been pretty conservative on this, and I, I, I really can't see Thai power going. Yeah, sure, we'll take cryptocurrency. Uh, he's going to have to convert it into uh, NT dollars. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, it'd be kind of very funny if uh, Thai power tries to itself modernize somehow by embracing crypto, but I, I think that's unlikely to happen here. Yeah, it's such a conservative organization. <laughs> And that's where we'll leave it here on Taiwan This Week This Week. And I've been joined today by Brian Hugh in the studio here in Taipei. Good night. And by Donovan Smith in Taichung on the telephone. And have a great weekend, everyone. And thanks for tuning in to this week's edition of Taiwan This Week here on ICRT with me, Gavin Phipps. And don't forget to check out Taiwan This Week podcast on your favourite podcast app where you can get access to all our previous shows. Tune in again next Friday evening at 9 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.